Okay, kid, uh, this is Robert Rickman here with OK Boomer, and for the first time in months, this first part of the program, the whole program is live, so watch out. Hey, some of us OK Boomers are asking people to speak up. That's because aging and hearing loss go together. But that's not the case for everyone, because when the power goes out, Diane Hart pricks up her ears. And what you first hear is, oh no, uh-oh, and it's soft. But you hear it because there's no sound. We'll talk with Diane about how noisy it is in the 21st century and comparing that to going back to the 1800s. And in the wake of the pandemic, we've all noticed prices climbing for nearly everything. But there is one place in a small rural community that's keeping costs down, way down. All of our hanging clothes, and we do get a lot of new items with tags on them, are $2.00. We'll join Celeste Williams after she made a $2 sale to me at a local senior's thrift store. And speaking of sales, what do boomers do with their already read books? Leave them on the front porch as donations as they downsize their home libraries. Sarah Heyer operates a local gently used bookstore. We'll be talking with Sarah about the book habits of seniors. The news is next on OK Boomer. This week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has announced measures that will make coverage more accessible, expand behavioral health care access, simplify choice, and make it easier for millions of Americans to select a health plan in 2024. This according to CMS. The 2024 Notice of Benefit and Payment Perimeters final rule will create a new special enrollment period for those who lose Medicare or Children's Health Insurance plans. Uh, They call it CHIP chip coverage, among others. The rule also builds on the Affordable Care Act by expanding access to quality, affordable health coverage and care, especially behavioral health care and making it easier to select and enroll in health coverage. It will also allow consumers to select a plan for marketplace coverage 60 days before or 90 days after losing Medicaid or CHIP coverage. Uh, This will work to reduce gaps in coverage and allows for a more seamless transition into the marketplace coverage. Now, the final rule also allows assisters to provide more convenient and efficient help to consumers and includes substance use disorder treatment centers and mental health facilities. It will also extend the requirement for plans to contract with at least 35% of federally qualified health centers and family planning providers. The final rule will make it easier for consumers to select a health care plan that best fits their individual needs and budget by refining designs for standardized plan options. Also, plan choice overload will be reduced. Now, for more information on the final rule, check out cms.gov slant newsroom. cms.gov slant newsroom. Well, sky-high flight costs won't stop older Americans from making family travel plans, according to a new report from the AARP. The annual AARP Travel Trends Survey examines the travel behaviors, expectations, and planning among adults. Three out of five people, 50-plus surveyed, said they anticipate traveling this year. That's similar to the results of the 2022 survey. AARP found that road trips in particular are a great way to discover new adventures and connect with loved ones while still being affordable. Road trips fulfill older travelers' top motivation for travel in 2023. I'm going to make one. Uh, This is according to the research. Uh, What they do is spend more time with family and friends. That's the boomers. They offer a set of unique benefits over other forms of travel, such as the ability to visit local attractions on the way, experience local food and culture, and enjoy scenic routes on the drive. Patty David, AARP Vice President of Consumer Insights, says... Uh, Though costs are higher than normal this year, older adults are once again eager to travel. Patty adds that research shows travel is at the top of their priority lists. And with the ability to bring family members along, many find road trips to be a budget-friendly choice as well as a fun one. Multi-generational road trips can improve emotional well-being, increase connections with loved ones, and benefit overall energy. That according to Patty David. More major findings from the survey. Most older travelers, that's 85%, rank travel in their top three priorities for discretionary spending significantly higher than other kinds of expenses. That's 85%. And family trips are 
uh, our older adults' number one motivator for domestic travel this year, ranking well above the solo vacations. And for 2023, 61% of travelers anticipate domestic-only travel. 50% of their domestic trips will be by car this year, compared to 43% in 2022. And concerns about COVID decreased this past year among 50-plus participants, meaning 80% feel that travel is now safe. And also, domestic travelers plan to take more trips to the U.S. South, that's 38%, and West, 31% than other parts of the country. Now, to view the full 2023 survey results, visit www.aarp.org. That's aarp.org. A new analysis by the National Council of Aging, that's the NCOA, and the University of Massachusetts finds that 80% of older Americans, or 47 million, are unable to sustain a a financial shock, such as needing to pay for long-term care services and supports or the loss of income due to divorce or widowhood. Now, that little fumble I did, I was thinking about it could happen to me. I can afford uh, my regular health care costs, rent, food, and all of that. But if something major happens that my insurance doesn't cover, I could be wiped out in in less than a week. Anyway, this NCOA study looks at the total net value of all assets, housing, retirement accounts, income, and savings of people aged 60 and older by income and compares that with the cost of two years of income, in-home, long-term care services, and nursing homes. Susan Silberman, Ph.D. at the National Council on Aging, says it is unacceptable that nearly all older Americans are one crisis away from plunging into poverty after working their entire lives and often saving a nest egg that is then wiped out by the cost of care. I, uh, I'm a friend um, with somebody on Facebook who had such a thing happen. Um, the wife was okay, but the husband had some very severe health problems, and I, uh, I texted her and said, how, how are you handling it? She says, what I do is I pile up the bills and pay them as I can get to them, meaning she probably will never pay them. That's kind of sad, but uh, the government is trying to do something about it, as we uh, talked about a couple of stories ago. Hey, the word out on the street is that processed foods are bad for you, but not all processed food. Check out three surprisingly healthy foods that are rich in nutrients. Processed foods can get a bad rap, but did you know that some are healthy? When foods are washed, bagged, canned, or boxed, they're all considered processed, but still have lots of vitamins and minerals. Let's take a look at three surprisingly healthy processed foods that are actually good for you. Fortified cereals, which have vitamins and minerals added, can be a great choice. Look for those that are low in sugar, less than six grams, with three grams of fiber or more. And some give you a whole day's worth of certain vitamins and minerals, like B12 and niacin. Some processed plant proteins are super healthy, like soy-based veggie burgers or veggie chicken. Soy is a high-quality protein and replaces animal products in milk, burgers, and veggie chicken strips. If you're watching your salt intake, make sure to read the label because these products can have a little or a lot. Canned beans are full of vitamins, protein, and fiber. They're ready to use in any recipe from soups and stews to quesadillas. Adding these nutrient powerhouses to your diet couldn't be easier. Look for reduced salt versions, or you can cut down on sodium by rinsing them first. And remember, process doesn't necessarily mean bad. It can be more convenient, and that's good if it means you're going to eat healthier. For more health tips, go to aarp.org health. Hey, I bet you didn't know about those processed foods, and they were actually good for you. Now let's talk about hearing loss. It's a common problem caused by loud noise, disease, genetic variations, and aging. I know at least one person who's wearing hearing aids now, uh, about my age, 70. And in fact, about one-third of older adults have hearing loss, and the chance of developing hearing loss increases with age. People with hearing loss may find it hard to have conversations with family and friends, and um, they may also have trouble understanding a doctor's advice, responding to warnings, and hearing doors, doorbells and alarms. Some people may not want to admit they have trouble hearing. Hearing problems that are ignored or untreated can get worse. 
Now, if you have a hearing problem, see your doctor. Hearing aids, special training, certain medications, and surgery are some of the treatments that can help. But getting older does not automatically mean you will lose your hearing. I had a situation where I started noticing that I couldn't hear the clock tick in my left ear. So I went to the doctor, and apparently I had a little fungus infection which contracted um, the ear canal, and uh, she cleared it up very quickly. So going to the doctor sometimes might be a simple solution. You might have earwax or something like that. But there are some people in their 60s and 70s whose hearing is... Well, they can hear a pin drop, and I'm talking about that literally. For instance, Diane Hart, who I used to work with at Nashville at a radio station, has very sensitive hearing and was well into her 60s when I interviewed her. We talked about how noisy it is now in the 21st century and how quiet it was before the era of modern noise-generating appliances. You know, I'm hearing right now, I'm hearing the fan, I'm hearing the lights, um, there's a hum. There's a lot of things going on. When the electricity goes out, that's all gone. You know, I noticed during your program and, and uh, before, you pick out sounds. I remember you said, I heard a hum here. What's the hum? At first, we thought it was my uh, computer, but mm-hmm. it was something else. Yeah. So you're very sensitive to sound. And I don't know why. I, maybe that's why I enjoyed music from a very early age, is that sounds attract me. And I guess one of the perverse things about power outages, when I first realized how interesting it was, I was at work, and I think it was before computers automatically did a lot of saving, and you know, and everyone's working in an office building, and it crashes, and, and it crashes, and what you first hear is, oh no, uh oh, and it's soft, but you hear it because there's no sound, yeah. there's just the people talking, and if I'm writing with a really nice graphite pencil, you'll hear the scratching. Um, I don't like the way rollerballs sound. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is just, that's part of me. Well, well, it's I'll my ears. Well, i sure when I'm here preparing for my program, I don't use one. Oh. Or I'll close the door. Okay. Yes, that's good because I gotta, you got to watch out with that. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of a program called Twilight Zone. Yeah. And there was a cowboy from the 1850s who somehow found himself in the 20th century and he put his hands to his ears and went... There's so much noise. What is that? Where's the music come from? Nothing. That's a jukebox. Just a plain old jukebox. Oh, it's, it's just that I need some sleep. And those... Those things that are running around. Things? Those, those carriages without horses. And the, and the lights going on and off. And the noise. It's, it's, it's like thunder all the time. Do you remember that one? I kind of do. I'm, yeah, I, I remember a lot of those. I'm always fascinated, too, by the idea that what we hear today, in, outside, in the plains, and the noise, and these composers from earlier... What did they hear? I mean, they, they heard natural sounds. Birds. Yeah, and they and in my neighborhood, which is more rural, you know, you will hear people talking, and it's maybe blocks away, but there's no, there's nothing else sound. So you hear, you know, you hear the dogs bark, and you hear the birds, and you hear the trees rustling. I love thunder. I'm not crazy about lightning. Uh, yes, well, lightning will do it to you. <laughs> that does the power outages, so I guess. The power outages, <laughs> so there are pluses and minuses. There's pluses and minuses. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was a few years ago on a radio station in Nashville, Tennessee. And Diane um, ran a program of choral music, of course, and she was a uh, singer as well. So she has perfect hearing. So some of us don't age in that respect, do we? Recently, I went online looking at prices of business shirts. I wear business shirts a lot, you know, with the long sleeves, and I prefer the button-down collars. A good shirt sells for $25 and up, and the 25 might be on the low end of a good shirt, 50 60 70 whatever it is. But what about paying $2 for a good shirt? Enter Stage Left, Celeste Williams, who runs a thrift shop at a local senior citizen center, and Celeste has this to say about, about thrift. This shop is basically a thrift store. But we carry everything. We carry clothes. We carry. We get donations of antiques. We carry electronics. Anything that comes in the back door, you'll find here. Uh, if we can't, if we don't feel that we can use it, 
we will donate it to someone else. I came in one day after trying to shop for a business shirt. Mm -hmm. And I was finding that even at the cheaper places, it was like 30 or $40. Mm -hmm. I bought a shirt here and a pair of trousers. Mm -hmm. And they looked new. In fact, I'm wearing the mm -hmm. trousers right now. And both of them cost together how much? Probably $4. That's right, $4. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to someone else in another senior center mm -hmm. and somebody at our, our radio station, and they're interested in coming over. So it seems like with the inflation taking place right now, coming to one of these places, this senior citizen center mm -hmm. in Murfreesboro is... Uh, a good idea. It's a very, very good idea. All of our hanging clothes, and we do get a lot of new Id items with tags on them, are $2. Uh, whether it be a, a jacket, a, a blouse, a shirt, pants, dress, whatever, they're $2. And we, we get a lot of brand name things, uh, and, and in good quality. What we try to do is if things really uh, don't meet a good criteria, we'll either put them out on a free rack and or, as I said before, we will donate them to someone that we know that can use them in, an, in another capacity. So you do have standards, and it looks to me like uh, all of the clothes are um, nicely pressed. Yes. They're all very clean, and they're in very good condition. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we strive really hard to do that. Uh, we realize that that just because you come to a thrift store doesn't mean that you shouldn't be getting something that you wouldn't be proud to wear or use. I have seen at other thrift stores in other parts of the country where you have people who are not really needy, but they don't want to spend the money for things that they consider to be too expensive, like a dress shirt. We get a lot of that. Uh, we, we get an awful lot of that of people that just want to get things at a reduced price, at a better price. Uh, and as you can see from your own personal experience, you can do that here. And considering inflation and everything, it kind of helps build the budget if you come here. And it also helps the Senior Citizen Center, of course, uh, because it's defraying the cost of operation to some degree. It does defray the cost of operation. We are very proud of what we do back here. Uh, the, uh, we feel that we help keep the van running. We feel that we help with, you know, the type of place for the meals to come into. Uh, we feel that uh, we provide even a social outlet here in the Senior Citizen Center as well as a thrift store. We have people that come back all the time, and if you notice, we have chairs. So people can sit down and talk to us and tell us about what, what has happened to them. And generally, we remember their names and a little bit about their history. Well, you remember my name, and I haven't been here for about three weeks. Yes. Uh, well, I'm just kind of good at that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you must be. Uh, now, you mentioned the van. That van is to pick up senior citizens who need to go someplace? That needs to go someplace. It's actually funded by the council, but uh, uh, people, uh, a person can ride that van. I think it's 250 uh, to get to, for for one stop, and then come, if you had make another stop, it'd be like five dollars. But uh, but we will take you within the city limits of Murfreesboro. We will take you to Kroger. We will take you to Walmart. We will take you to a doctor's appointment. Uh, whatever whatever you need. The one thing I want to add is that this we are staffed by volunteers, and we're all very proud of that. We come here and we give our time here. And we, we work very, very hard to, make, to be, have a professional place for people to come into, a neat place uh, where people feel comfortable and where people feel like uh, uh, they, have a great, they have dignity uh, shopping here. Celeste Williams runs the thrift store at the Murfreesboro, Illinois Senior Center. Well, it's time for some coffee. Oh, ow, ow. I started running a week ago, and I'm paying for it, but that's okay. I can walk to the coffee pot. And uh, we're going to visit really quickly the ping pong match going on at the ping pong room here on OK Boomer. We have a lot of facilities at this radio station. I'm walking along here, uh, and uh, well, that's that's an oops. They dropped the dropped the ball. 
trying to again. I, I never played ping pong. I'm not very good at it. I couldn't hit the ball with a with a truck. Anyway, uh, we're approaching the coffee machine. We're in front of the coffee machine, and we're turning it on. We're turning it on. Coffee. And we're going to try the coffee in a few minutes. But while we're letting the coffee perk and fill up my single coffee container. Okay, Boomer. Mmm, delicious. And let's go on to our underwriters who are standing by and holding for valuable information. Hey, hey, everybody. It's the White Raven from the Hot, Hot, Hot Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WDBX, Sundays, 12 to 2. Join me and all the Gumbo Pot heads where I'll be bringing you all the best music from Louisiana, New Orleans, the Bayou, with a little bit of Delta Blues thrown in for good measure. So all you swamp rats, grab your Zydeco shoes, meet me in the Gumbo Pot at high noon. We always pass a good time, Chef. Peace, love, and Zydeco. Aye! Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. TechTime also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, TechTime is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's TechTime.it. TechTime.it. Dot .it And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S G U I G N A. Laura Squigna and you can find her on the Tech Time website under Translators. Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery. Weird animals and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit us online at theofframp.show. One of the things that's good about the off-ramp is when Bob and Marsha ask a question, I start thinking about it. And they say thinking, the act of thinking and doing these little, these little teasers, these little brain teasers, uh, helps to offset dementia and other problems with cognitive aging. So let's go to the 71-year-old cognitive ager, Bob Smith. Hmm, here are some interesting facts. (laughs) Well, I think they are, Bob. This is Bob Smith along with Marcia Smith, and we've got some great trivia for you today here on OK Boomer. What gender was responsible for the first alcoholic beverages? Well, I have a feeling it's not the obvious, so I'll say women. It is women, and there's a really good explanation for that. For millennia, fermented drinks were considered food. I, I never thought of that. Think of beer as liquid bread, Marcia. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Done. (laughs) Because beer was considered food, it was first made in homes by women. And women were the primary beer makers going all the way back to the ancient Sumerian civilization. And in the Code of Hammurabi, there are no male tavern owners or brewers. The text always refers to she. So huh. women were known as... The brewers. They were, they were chefs, cooks, and brewers, too. I'll be danged. And even the Sumerian god of beer was a goddess. <laughs> Sumerian god of beer? Yeah. And then apparently, for most of the next 2,000 years across the world, women brewed alcohol out of their homes using honey, grains, flowers, and herbs. Before the year 1500, most English women knew how to brew ale. 
Some women even started ale houses, hanging what they call ale stakes on their homes to indicate that a drink was available inside. But that backfired because when women began selling ale, writers and religious authorities began to criticize ale wives as cheats and temptresses. Oh, temptresses. And then uh, after millions of people died in the plague, for some reason, brewing shifted to men and it became an industrialized, mass-produced product. I wonder why that is. Don't know, but apparently sake had a similar trajectory in Japan, made at first by women, later primarily by men. Huh. I have a few girlfriends who make their own beer. Okay. So the tradition continues. <laughs> okay, Bob, can you give me an estimate of the population in the Arctic Circle? Uh, I would assume that is a small population. I'll say under a 1,000 people. That's a good guess. Okay. That's over 4 million. What? Yeah. Doesn't that blow your way? Uh, the Arctic Circle incorporates... Portions of eight countries, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Finland, Russia, Sweden, and the United States. Mm. And despite the harsh climate and often inhospitable living conditions, there are still four million people who live and work there year-round. That's amazing. It, I didn't know there were that many. No. And, or that many countries had no. you know, parts of their uh, territory in the Arctic Circle. And there's indigenous people. There are 40 different ethnic groups there, uh, the Inuit. Sami, you pick peoples uh, that account for 10% of the regional population. Wow. And they maintain traditional culture like fishing, reindeer herding, and hunting activities. Oh, reindeer yeah. herding. I've got something that relates they've to been reindeer. There, they've been there for thousands of years and are still there. Okay, Marcia, speaking of reindeer, <laughs> where does the word parka come from? Parka. Parka over here. Um Reindeer. Well, you said it has something to do with reindeer. I don't know. Parka comes from an Inuit word. You mentioned the Inuits, mm -hmm. the Eskimos. But they got it from the Russians, who were the first people to settle Alaska from a European extraction, okay? Uh -huh. So when they came there, they had a word that they used. Parka was a word that meant skin coat, animal skins. In what language? From a Russian native oh, language. okay. Parka. And a lot of times it was reindeer coats. Oh, that makes sense. Reindeer pelts, you know, mm -hmm. and they would pull them over. We think of a parka as something you pull over with a hood. Well, you'd pull them over your head, uh -huh. and you had a nice winter coat. That was what parka was. But, of course, today we, it's usually a lighter jacket for winter. It says Land's End on it or <laughs> Yes, or, or Hetty Bauer or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Okay, well, that uh, makes sense, actually. And those look, when you see the old movies, you know, with Kevin Costner or whatever, and they're wearing these huge animal skins over their body. You think, well, that had to be warm. Think of how you survived the Think elements. of how they smelled yeah. <laughs> if they got wet or something, you know? Yeah, well, let's not. Okay, Bob, tell me, what is Air Horse One? What? <laughs> Air Horse One. Air Horse One? Yeah. So what is this, the president's plane for horses I haven't heard about? <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. But there is, not a presidential plane, but there is a plane dedicated for transporting horses called Air Horse One. <laughs> and it's owned and operated by Tex Sutton Equine Air Transportation. What? Air Transportation. It's a Boeing 727-2000 cargo airlift used for racehorses, show horses, and other VIP clients. These, Because, you know, these 1,000-pound beauties have to travel somehow. Not all of them go in trailers. Yeah. And it's not cheap. Round trip, 10000 bucks. And do they actually get a seat? Because horses don't usually sit down. You know, I don't know. <laughs> and, well, do they get free peanuts? That's the question. Oh, that is a question. Yeah, I don't know. This but, reminds me of that uh, story we did on the uh, how they got the horses to the Tokyo Olympics. And it was the same thing. They FedEx flew them in big... Wow, cargo ships. Cargo cargo planes. I imagine they had to anchor them down. And, oh, that must have been terrifying if you're a horse, don't you think? Yeah, and they had stalls and everything, and you know. But I mean, oh, did they? Yeah, they had people on board for each horse to keep them calm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Air Horse One. Yeah, I, I like the name. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Air, Air Horse One. Okay, I have a question for you. We were talking about coats like and things to be like a that. Stewardess on that. <laughs> Marcia, they're called flight attendants yes, now. I'm sorry. I misspoke. Shame on you. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. How did a near-death experience lead to light winter outerwear, the puffy coat? 
the quilted puffy coat we all know about. What was the first part of that question? How did a near-death experience lead to that? The person well, who invented it yeah. well, did, they, did it because they had a near-death experience. Well, did they fall down a mountain uh, skiing or something and, and it wasn't thick enough to bounce off the rock so they put air in the coat and no, you... Judging from the terrible face you're making at me. Okay. All right, tell me. Okay, now human beings have known that Goose Down had insulating properties for centuries, but it took a near-death experience, a new design, and a great marketing campaign to popularize the puffy quilted jackets we all know and love. And who can we say did that? Eddie Bauer. The, really? The real Eddie Bauer, yeah. He was a hunter-fisherman named Eddie Bauer. He ran a Seattle-based sporting goods shop. He uh, got hypothermia and nearly died during a 1936 steelhead fishing trip in the Pacific Northwest. And when he returned to Seattle, he remembered stories that his Russian uncle told him about the down-filled winter coats that Russian soldiers used to wear in the Russo-Japanese War back in 1905. So he designed... A lightweight, down-filled jacket with those diamond-shaped quilted yeah. compartments so that kept the down from falling to the bottom of the jacket. And he called it the Skyliner, and he patented it in 1940, just in time for World War II. <laughs> so he began adv advertising it in Field and Stream, American Rifleman, and all those magazines. And then World War II, the government contracted with Eddie Bauer to make flight suits and sleeping bags wow. for U.S. service people. He made a fortune and, and a useful product. The B-9 flight suit, down insulation flying jacket with downfilled pants designed to keep aviators warm for up to three days in minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures. Anyway, each one of those jackets that he made for the U.S. government had a tag inside said Eddie Bauer, Seattle, USA, which gave him a brand name and future customer bases I'll with bet. the XGIs after the war. Good marketing. They still uh, they still sell that model, the 1936 Skyliner model down jacket, still available through the uh, Eddie Bauer Originals line. Interesting. Yes, it is. That's it for the off-ramp. Bob and Marcia Smith, we just want to remind everyone, if they'd like to join us on the web, they can come to our site at theofframp.show. Now back to Robert P. Rickman with more on OK Boomer. You know, I should at one point have had one of those flight suits when I was flying with the Air Force Auxiliary, uh, we flew search and rescue in California. We had Nomex flight suits that give you three extra seconds in case the airplane burst into flames. But it was noted for being cold in the winter and really hot in the summer. Anyway, let's forget about flying and let's go to something we all like. I don't know of anybody who does not like a good cheeseburger. Who know me well know the hamburger is perhaps my favorite food, with cheeseburgers not far behind. So how can I not like Cheeseburger in Paradise by Jimmy Buffett? Unlike the song, however, I have made no attempt to amend my carnivorous habit. Okay, so how many think Jimmy wants mustard on his cheeseburger? Nope, it's Munster, as in the type of cheese. It's a commonly misheld lyric, but Munster does make sense, considering the song is about cheeseburgers, after all. Cheeseburger in Paradise was a number 32 hit on the Hot 100, and unlike some of his songs, did not cross over to any other chart. This is one of two Jimmy Buffett songs on my favorites list. For a period of time, there was a Cheeseburger in Paradise restaurant chain, which was licensed by Jimmy Buffett. However, they have all closed. The last one in New Jersey closed in 2020. You can still order a cheeseburger in paradise at the Margaritaville Resorts, however. Here's Jimmy Buffett, Cheeseburger in Paradise from 1978. 
Well, I like mine with onions, a little bit of mustard, and a little bit of horseradish. Cheeseburger in Paradise, out of the past in the 1970s, courtesy of the Jet. So let's go from eating to studying. Here's a question. Uh, you got a home, and you're going to be moving to a smaller place. I'm talking about a boomer who is retired. And you've got a whole bunch of stuff, furniture you're not going to need, and you've got a whole bunch of books collected from, say, the 1960s. What do you do with it? Well, we have a possible answer here, at least in the community I live in. What happens to the books? Sarah Heyer of a gently read used bookstore in a rural part of the country tells us, Sarah, what you have noticed is that people are coming in not just to buy books, but to... Leave them on the front porch as donations as they downsize their home libraries because baby boomers are moving into smaller houses or leaving town or going into assisted living. And there are lots of books that they need to unload, which is the bulk of our collection. But it also becomes a community service in taking all the books, which we do, and then sorting them out into ones that we can give away, sell for a buck, give to Goodwill, sell for three bucks, or put onto the website, put into the system, into the database. It sounds to me like you're running a very complicated library. Or a recycling service in some ways. You never thought you'd be getting into something like this once you bought this bookstore or founded it. No. I didn't know what I was getting into, I guess. But it's working out, and it's a, everyone who comes in says, oh, it's so nice, I'm so glad you're here, thank you for taking my books off my hands, because people respect books. They don't want to just throw them away. They want them to go to somebody else, especially if they enjoyed the book. They want somebody else to enjoy it also. And I want to continue that spirit. And you are the only locally owned bookstore in Carbondale. Um, yes, there's the bookstore at the university, and I think that's it. Other places do sell books in addition to other things, but we're the only one that just does books, and they're only used books. I don't sell new books. Oh, Barnes & Noble is the other big one, and I like people to go to Barnes & Noble. They sell coffee there, and I don't sell coffee, and they will get you new books, which I don't have. However, you've made one exception in the past for one new book, a few, if it's a local author. we The local authors have come in and just donated one of their books so that it can sit on the bookshelf, and then people can be exposed to it. And a couple of those books have actually sold. And so those people, I, have to, I pay to buy new copies of their books. On behalf of one of those authors, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. My book, my novel, uh, was sold at the Bookworm, and it's no longer sold at the bookworm because the bookworm doesn't exist. Um, uh, 710 Bookstore sold my book. That doesn't exist anymore. And I think for several years, there were no locally owned bookstores in Carbondale. Oh, you're looking at something? You're trying to figure out? You're calculating something in your head? Yeah. We were talking about what kinds of genres people like to read. And what's really interesting is the diversity of people who come into the bookstore, regardless of age. They are still, they're interested in all kinds. Um, We do sell a lot of books, a lot of fiction, a lot of mysteries, books on religion, and regional books, especially regional history. Those are all, those are probably our top sellers. Although, yes, mysteries sell more than romance, but when somebody comes in for a romance book, they often take half a dozen with them. So when you want a romance, you want several. And so if if people are interested in romance, be aware they're not like as obvious here because that we don't sell as many, but we have lots of romance books also. Now, getting back to uh, regional history, uh, when I did this research for this book I wrote, I found that Southern Illinois has about as much history as you can pack into a small region. I mean, uh, the the earthquake of 1810-1811, the great tri-state tornado of 1925, the deadliest tornado in history, the riots in 1970 at SIU, the Heron Massacre, the 
mine explosions. There have been so many things, most of them bad, that have happened here in Southern Illinois. And you sell books that, that go over this, like maybe a Bloody Williamson? Oh, yeah. That comes and goes. We don't always have it in stock, but we have one in stock right now. It has come in. Also, lots of books about SIU, written by many of the people who are instrumental in SIU's growth. By the time Delight Morris arrived at SIU, uh, the student population was only about 3,000. And when I got here in 1970, it was 24,000. I'm looking at the shelf at the ordeal of Southern Illinois University. And another title I like is The University That Shouldn't Have Happened But Did. I read that. And I read that in that book that one of the reasons why Southern Illinois is kind of isolated is because of the lack of bridges crossing the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. I didn't know that. Yes, if you want to cross from Carbondale, the Mississippi River, you have to go north to Chester or south to Cape Girardeau. And that's how many miles between those two spots? It's at least 30 minutes to get there to the bridge. Yeah, in either direction. So so commerce between southern Illinois and uh, Missouri. There isn't much commerce between southern Illinois, although local people will say people frequently will cross over to Pinckneyville, to Cape Girardeau, to do their shopping, to avoid state taxes. Usually that's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot because those state taxes are the ones that put the road together so that you can drive to the next state. This is a unique part of the country. Now, you're from the uh, East Coast. How, how does Southern Illinois strike you in general? Is it how different? Well, obviously, it's going to be different from the East Coast. How does it strike you generally? Is it Southern Illinois and the people? I came to SIU as a graduate student, and I saw people staying here, getting married, and just not leaving. And I was on a track to get out of the country to go abroad and teach English. So I thought, this place is quicksand. I got to get out of here, make sure I don't get caught. And then I met my husband. It was April. I was due to graduate in August. And And that ruined the whole plan. No, I still went to China. I had my job lined up, and I did go to China, but I wound up coming back. And then he showed me parts of southern Illinois, like uh, Cedar Lake and Little Grand Canyon and hiking everywhere in the Shawnee. And I realized, well, if you have to live in the United States, this is as good a place as any. So I'm happy to be here now. Good. What I'm finding is that the people I've been interviewing are very interesting to interview did you mention that baby boomers are the ones who are mostly downsizing, but there are still a lot who are still buying books. A lot of people are still collecting books. They want hardback copies of specific books, like they are putting together all the books written by a certain author. And that's cool. Happy to help them. If I don't have a book on hand, I, I usually tell people, let me know, give me your phone number, and if it does come in, I will call you. I don't always remember, but I've got it written down, and I I do try. In our commercials, we say there's a broad range of interests in southern Illinois, and so that means that the books that come into the store cover that broad range, and the books that people are interested in buying are also similarly diverse. And my science section, I love my science section. It doesn't get as much because it's in the corner. It doesn't get as much attention or as many books sold out of it, but it's excellent. Why don't you put a chemistry apparatus on top of the bookshelf uh, to attract the attention? My sister taught chemistry in high school in Burlington, Vermont. They called the fire department one time when things exploded. I blew up my chemistry set. It was designed for something like 11 or 12 when I was 9. My folks thought I was so smart. Well, I decided to conduct an experiment on boiling alcohol in a stopped test tube over an alcohol burner. That'll do it. That'll do it, sir. Yeah, and I watched it, and and the cork popped off, and the alcohol shot into the air and hit the burner, and it looked like a miniature atomic explosion. The fireball hit the ceiling, singed the ceiling, burned a hole through the 
tablecloth, the dining room tablecloth, singed the dining room table, and then spilled off onto the floor, uh, singeing the tiles on the floor, and my finger was on fire, and I'm on the ground looking for the test tube, and my friend stamps on my finger. I said, what are you doing that for? He says, well, I'm trying to put out the fire. And at that time, were you thinking, oh, or were you thinking, wow, this is cool? Well, my my finger hurt. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't thinking at all. Well, I can imagine. Anyway, my folks bought me this chemistry set because they thought I was very intelligent, and I quickly disproved that. <laughs> and I didn't go into chemistry either. I went into broadcasting. Anyway, Sarah Heyer of Confluence Books in Carbondale, Illinois, was also a WDBX underwriter. It's time now for a press conference going back about, oh, 60-some-odd years a person who was running for president, and I think you're going to know his accent. I'm Alan Robin, and I was sitting here with my partner, Mr. Earl Dove. Good evening. And also with Mr. Westbrook Van Voorhees, Mr. John St. Ledger, and Mr. John Cameron Swayze. And the five of us are going to conduct a series of simulated press conferences. We've taken the actual recorded voices of the president and other prominent political people, and we put their answers with questions entirely of our own making. Well, why did we ever do a thing like that? Well, I don't know, but I think it sounds much more interesting this way. Gentlemen, who are we scheduled to interview next? I've been waiting around now for three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Our next guest is the junior senator from New York. Senator, first we'd like to welcome you here today. We hope this will be a happy interview. No, well, I mean, that's, I don't think that that would be... I doubt if it will be. <laughs> uh, Senator is the father of nine children and a devoted family man. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out to come and speak with us here. I'm delighted to see uh, so many grown-ups all in one room. <laughs> uh, we continue the questioning with Mr. Swayze. Senator, I wonder if we might switch for just a moment and keep the door open. Well, sir, we normally close the door for silence, you understand. I'm in favor of keeping that door open. (laughs) All right, we'll keep the door open. Thank you very much. Senator, as an out-of-stater, some people have questioned your motives for coming into New York. I grew up here in the state of New York. Well then, obviously it does have meaning for you. What exactly is New York to you and your wife, Ethel? Something that we will hand over to our children. (laughs) Mr. St. Ledger. Uh, Now that you're a senator, you must have some very, very exciting and vital things you plan on doing for the people of New York. No, I have no plans. Surely, surely, Senator, you have some ideas. I just have no plans. Well, what do the people of New York need? Well, I think you'd have to ask them. Senator, if we can, uh, if we can look ahead for just a moment, uh, do you think your brother Teddy will one day be president? If he wants to uh, join me and where I'm going, I'd be glad to have him along. <laughs> Well, then, if I, uh, if I correctly interpret what you've just said, uh, when would you like to be president? Now. <laughs> well, I, I think you know it can't be done that quickly. 1965, 1966? No. Obviously, you can't run for president until 1968. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> It's been rumored that you're carrying on a feud with the president. Now, of course, none of us happen to believe that. Didn't you pay him a visit just recently? A few days ago. Did you have a nice, friendly chat with the president? I showed up and he had guards to keep me out. (laughs) We understood, sir, that on a recent tour of the Western United States, you visited Mount Rushmore. I did, yes. With the great heads of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln carved into the mountainside. That's correct. 
And as you stood there gazing up at that monument, did any particular thoughts come to mind? I'd like to be a part of that. <laughs> Senator, many thanks for being with us this evening. Thank you very much. Incidentally, due to your heavy schedule, we almost took it upon ourselves to cancel this interview entirely. I would have been delighted. <laughs> And that was Robert F. Kennedy, and made in probably about 64, 65. What do you think of that, Laura Lee? Okay, Boomer. Okay, here, let's uh, hit two scams while we're at it. A Houston area couple received a call last month from their adult son, or at least they thought it was him. The voice sounded exactly like him. He said he'd been in a car accident where he hit a woman who was six months pregnant, had just been released from the hospital, and now is in the county jail about to be charged with DWI. And according to a reliable source, he needed $5,000 to get himself out of the mess. Now, absolutely convinced that the caller was their child, they handed over the cash to an intermediary. And what was it? It was a scam. Most likely, artificial intelligence was used for this to copy this guy's voice, to make it from nothing, and so these people got sucked into the scam. So you have to be careful. The government is doing some work on trying to take care of this artificial intelligence, these artificial voices, so they can stop it. But if somebody calls you and you're suspicious, call them back. Now, scammers use sophisticated tactics to trick potential victims into disclosing personal and financial information. Typically, they use these P's, pretend, prize, or problem, pressure, and payment. For example, scammers pretend they are from Social Security in phone calls or emails and claim there's a problem with the person's Social Security number. The uh, scammer's caller ID may be spoofed to look like a legitimate government number. Scammers may also send fake documents to pressure people into complying with demands for information or money. Other common tactics include citing badge numbers and using fraudulent Social Security letterhead to target individuals for payment or personal information. Social Security will never tell you that your Social Security number is suspended, contact you to demand an immediate payment, threaten you with arrest, arrest, ask for your credit or debit card numbers over the phone, request gift cards or cash, or promise a Social Security benefit approval or increase in exchange for information or money. Social Security employees do contact the public by telephone for business purposes and business purposes only. Now, working with our law enforcement and private sector partners to inform consumers about scammers and their deceptive practices remains a priority for my office, and that is uh, a Social Security representative who said that. And when I say call someone back, if you think or they say they, that they're your son or your cousin or something like that, I say call their number that you know for sure, and then they'll take care of it. And that wraps up OK Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman. Have a very good day.